When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Dave Whitaker, and this is Vinyl Snob. So what we have to do is say, okay, well, what day do you need the records by? That's the first thing we do before we schedule anything is we ask you when you need them. On this episode, Dana Barry has part two of his special report, The Vinyl Dream. And we check out the local record store scene in Washington, D.C. I'd like to start out the program with a little vinyl news. It's understandable that when record companies years ago started reissuing music on vinyl, that since the mid-90s had only been available on CD, as a business investment, they stuck to the hits and popular artists. While some classical recordings were reissued on vinyl, I was told at the time by a couple of record companies that movie soundtracks, always a hard sell, and I'm quoting here, would not be reissued there are only about 50 people in the world who would buy them. Well, that attitude has changed. And here to tell us about it, we welcome Vinyl Stop contributor Cameron Robbins. Welcome to the show, Cameron. Hey, David. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So as our resident uh, Jerry Goldsmith expert, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, one, the fact that the record companies are are now taking into account that people do like these soundtracks. They are uh, There's a certain amount of collectability about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the facts that all this stuff is now being reissued, um, whereas before, I mean, I can remember you and I pulling used, you know, soundtrack albums out of the bins at record stores because nobody was buying them at the time. Yeah. And now they've become quite popular. So um, how do you explain this? You know, I think, like you, you said it earlier, collectability. So I think there's a little bit of the nostalgia, obviously, especially with somebody like Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams to an extent, uh, of these old-time scores from the 70s and 80s, uh, even in the 60s, of these great classic films that everybody loves. We can take Alien, for an example. That's a Ridley Scott film. It's a horror film, 1979. Uh, it came out. It was a huge hit. Everybody loved it. The score was great. The score has some issues uh, on the back end, a lot of it was replaced by other Jerry Goldsmith music, but it has like this nostalgia around it. And then, of course, you put it on a big vinyl jacket and you get nice, beautiful new artwork done and you limit them to maybe a thousand copies, let's say 3000 at the most. You charge a little bit of a premium price. A lot of these aren't extravagant, $35, maybe 50 at the most. And now you've you've changed the color of the vinyl on the inside, so it's got some cool colors. And now you've got a collectible item, and then people are going to snatch it up, especially because, the, A, the music's great, the artwork is, artwork is fantastic, and then the sound quality. I think a lot of people are starting to realize, oh, okay, all these are done on 180 gram. This is going to sound fantastic. Yes, and they do. And it, the collectability issue, I think, the, that we hit on there says it all. As I was researching this this morning, I came across a uh, reissue of the Jerry Goldsmith Rudy Mm -hmm. soundtrack, which is one of my favorite movies. Now, I can tell you that I own that soundtrack on CD. I also have it on MP3 for when I travel. 
but I have to have it on vinyl. I, of course, think vinyl sounds better, but it's also, as you said, it's the big artwork. It's, um, it, it's a collectible. And it sounds better. And I saw it, and well, I have to have this in my collection. And I think that's what a lot of people that are drawn to things like this, which, you know, movie soundtracks are certainly not considered mainstream by the, you know, buying public. But uh, when you do get a fan, like you or myself, nothing will stop us, right? No, nothing will stop me. What, what color did you get? Did you get the Irish gold or the shamrock green Rudy soundtrack? Irish gold. Oh, nice. That's a good one. <laughs> and you know what's so weird? You had to ask the question. I had to. That you knew it as well as I did. And I'm, and I'm looking at it, ooh, green or gold? No, it's got to be in gold. Uh, when, so when the soundtrack first came out, it sold out very quickly. And uh, Shamrock Green was the only one that left available. So that's the one I had to get. Uh, but I think you're right. And, and a lot of the record companies uh, have kind of sold off those rights to the vinyl, um, to all these boutique stores that are popping up, these online stores, these boutique uh, record labels that are really cool, and they do a really great job. But I think they're, I don't know what the cost price benefit is for these guys, because they, again, they're only doing about a, a thousand pressings, and they're charging no more than $50. So and, and once they're, once they're sold out, they're gone. These, this artwork is a limited edition. The pressings are limited edition. I don't know if they've worked it out with the record label where they only get one run of it and that's it. But, you know, now it's a premium. Like, I, you know, La La Land Records is one of my favorite record labels. They do an, a fantastic job of finding hard to find, uh, getting hard to find uh, soundtracks, re-releasing them, uh, really going above and beyond uh, with re-releasing them and getting all the unreleased tracks and putting them in sequential order and redoing, remastering. And they do great work on vinyl now. And they have this incredible Star Trek The Motion Picture release that they did. And it was an extremely limited run. And it was probably four four discs. And it had every track ever released uh, for Star Trek The Motion Picture. And now if you went on Amazon to try and find it, you'd be paying double than the original price. Yeah, the stuff goes fast, and I think the record companies are thrilled about that. Now, I want to go back to something that you had said, that um, these aren't being you know released by the record company that originally had the rights to them, that originally would have put it out on vinyl back in the early days or on CD. So you're telling us that these the, the rights to most of this music are being sold to these smaller boutique labels, and they're actually the ones that are putting them out? Yeah, yeah. So a place like Mondo... Um, out of Texas, I believe they have. Um, they're they're a boutique uh, website, but they they feature a lot of posters and collectibles and apparels and pins. And then now they've gotten into music and they do uh, a lot of vinyl releases. Uh, they had a lot of great Jerry Goldsmith releases over the years. The Omen was one of them. They did a very special edition Omen with new artwork, uh, dual dual LP release on that. And they have uh, in stock right now, they have Alien and Planet of the Apes, but they, you know, they have other composers as well, but they, they hire these uh, artists that recreate the movie posters or they recreate uh, scenes from the film and they put them on the, the beautiful vinyl cases and the, and the packaging and it's, and they're gorgeous. And, you know, once they're sold, they're gone for good. So I don't know if it's a if it's a one time deal. I'm not in the business of uh, making or selling records, so it's hard to know exactly how they get away with this. If it's they buy the rights a one time 
it's a one-time deal. I mean, they can be a little expensive from what I've seen. And then certainly somebody like Jerry Goldsmith, where he was basically with the same record company for his entire career, uh, Varez uh, Sarabon, and they actually have some vinyl releases of him, but very limited. You know, we're talking Gremlins 2 is only um, a limited edition of 750 copies. So, you know, th- those things are going to go fast. LA Confidential, Star Trek uh, Nemesis. And so that record label is still in business and they still have the rights to Jerry Goldsmith's work and they still release deluxe special edition CDs. And on top of that, they're now releasing, because vinyl has come back, they're releasing vinyl editions of his work. Since most of these are being done in, in a large part, uh, as you brought up, by boutique record companies, are they showing up in record store bins or is this pretty much all online? Very good question. I've only seen one or two of the really, really well-known Goldsmith albums that have been reissued in record stores. Um, We're talking some really big stuff, Star Trek, and I think even I might have seen, uh, I definitely have seen Alien and The Omen. Uh, those were larger releases, and you can still find those. Those I don't. I'm not entirely sure if they were limited runs. Star Trek has sold out, but that was that's been about three years now. Um, the fun part is that it's mostly online, and they're very inexpensive. So that cuts down on the price, and on top of that, a lot of these boutique stores are releasing albums from Jerry or from, uh, you know, John Williams, James Horner, that are even really hard to find on CD. Sometimes they weren't released on CD, or if they were, they were extremely limited because it wasn't a huge movie. Let's take The Burbs, for instance, one of my favorite Tom Hanks films. Uh, it has a, a fabulous Jerry Goldsmith score, and it's impossible to get on CD. They La La Land or uh, Entrada, they released a special edition of it, but again, these are only 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 copies. So once they're sold, they're gone. And then um, Waxwork Records, another boutique online store, got the rights to the Burbs and re-released it on vinyl. And it's fantastic. This is the only way to get this soundtrack now is on vinyl. And it's fantastic. It's a, a four LP release with great artwork, brand new artwork. And it's uh, gorgeous on the inside. And it's $35. I don't think you can beat that. It's 180 gram. And it's exclusive liner notes from the director. It's a great soundtrack. It takes place uh, in 1989. It's a comedy with Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher. It's it's awesome, but it does a lot of throwbacks to Jerry. It's a parody score almost. Jerry does a lot of throwbacks to his older works like Patton and uh, Alien. And it's, it's a really fun score. And the only way to get it is on vinyl. All right, Cameron, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Always good to talk to you. Cameron Robbins is an Emmy-winning producer musician, and regular contributor to Vinyl Snob. He spoke with us from Boston. To hear his Jerry Goldsmith Vinyl Snob radio music show, go to the VS Radio drop-down menu and click on Guest DJ at VinylSnob.com. And Cameron also composed our theme music. If you're a musician, singer, or composer, And I've always thought, wouldn't it be cool to have my music on vinyl? It's not out of reach. Producer Dana Berry explores the vinyl dream in part two of his special report. All right, welcome back to those listeners who joined me for part one of the vinyl dream in our previous episode of Vinyl Snob. For those just tuning in, you might want to check out episode 12 before continuing with part two here. But as a recap, I play in a band called Night Herons, and we're making our first vinyl record. 
Part one ended as I received the test pressings and put the needle down on our music for the first time. Okay, so here we are. The test pressings have been approved. Now what? Let's hear some more from our vinyl broker, Mark Calabro at Vinyl.io. The best advice that I can give anybody is don't set your release date for your vinyl until you've approved the test pressing because at that point, once you've approved the test pressing, I can give you a date on when it's scheduled to be pressed. Right. So the workflow for us is you approve a set of test pressings as long as all of your artwork proofs are approved and we know that those parts are being printed and manufactured. We have an idea of when that print's going to be at the plant. So what we have to do is say, okay, well, what day do you need the records by? That's the first thing we do before we schedule anything is we ask you when you need them, right? Even though our lead times are eight to 10 weeks, we still want to give production the date that you need them by because this is the music industry. It's the wild west. I mean, we try to stick to a schedule, but the reality is, is we try to make concessions all the time. Everybody needs records as fast as they can get them. So it's tough for being in a band because you're just... Oh, you it's horrible. <laughs> right now, and it's like... You just spent how much money recording the record and mastering the record, and you want to release it because... I mean, shoot, back when we had 26-week lead times, it's like you're about to put out another record by the time that first record comes out. You know, I think everybody's kind of working towards faster lead times, and we all know that that's something that needs to happen, which is why capacity is opening up. But at the end of the day, you know, it takes time to make records... And, and when things go wrong, it takes even more time, yeah. potentially. Right. And that's the, that's the part that we wish every customer understood. It's always the fastest turnaround where you run into the most turbulence. Of course. That's yeah. how it goes, man. There's vinyl, vinyl juju that, like, yeah. if you're in a rush, like, the, the universe has a way of making, making you slow down. Printing's great. Printing paper is the easiest thing compared to vinyl. <laughs> It's like you're never going to run into a problem. If it's on your proof, it comes out on the jacket. As long as the jackets make it to the plant, you're good. And it's almost perfect system. Right. Vinyl is the wild card. You know, you're talking about we work with plants that have collective hundreds of years of experience, the people who work in there. You'd think that they'd have it down to a perfect science by now. I just don't think it ever will be. We were fortunate to be scheduled to press with Rainbow Records in Los Angeles. Not only is Rainbow a legendary plant that's been around for 80 years, but I had become acquainted with the owner, Steve Sheldon, a couple of years ago as Vinyl Snob did an interview with him and got a tour of the plant. Check out episodes 5 and 6. So I emailed Steve and asked if I could come down and be there when the pressing was done. Steve was generous enough to move the press date back so that he could be there to give me a tour while our record was being pressed. Off to L.A. I brought along my friend Kenny to shoot some video. Now, Kenny doesn't own any vinyl, but I still consider him a good friend. And hope maybe this venture might convince him to change his ways. So on a clear, sunny morning, we drove deep into the valley to Rainbow, where the Willy Wonka Record Factory resides in an inconspicuous industrial park. We met up with Steve, and away we went. What press? Press 13. 13? Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. For them to look yeah. At. We're going to set it up right here. Okay, great. So, I'll have you know, 
that they pulled Snoop Dogg off the press to accommodate night herons. I'll take that as a sign that we'll be bumping them off the charts soon, too. Or, more likely, it's because our small order will be done by the time Snoop Dogg finishes yawning. So 200 Records is on the smaller side of things. <laughs> About the smallest you would do? I do 100. Oh, 100? Yeah. Still? yeah. Alright, so I don't feel so small. Don't, don't feel that bad. <laughs> Uh, my biggest order, which was single order, was the uh, remaster of the Beatles box set in 2011. Oh, really? Wow. 16 records in the box and 50,000 sets, so 800,000. All right, so after that tidbit of knowledge reduced my ego to the size of a vinyl pellet, we headed off to the printing department where they print up the labels. So back here we... Um, print the record labels, we print them eight up on a sheet. We drill the center hole, and then we put it into a punch and we die cut them into the circle. We do our own printing, we do our own labels, we don't print our own jackets. Right. Um, we do our own plating, so there's only a handful of plants that do that also. From there we went into the QC room where Ojeda, who was doing our run, was doing a spot check of one of our records that was just pressed. Here's your record. There it is. Oh my gosh. And then we, we check it for to make sure it's on center, and to make sure there's no obvious right. damages, pops, any non-fill, those kind of things that are inherent in the record. Steve then explained how we actually got to this point, taking us through the electroplating process. And if you haven't already, you can go to the Vinyl Snob website and check out the episode 13 webpage, and you'll be able to follow along visually as there's photos and the video that my vinyly deficient friend Kenny took. You supply the lacquer. Yep. This is what the lacquer looks like, or the okay. lacquer looks like. Yep. We spray that with silver to make it conduct with electricity. Okay. Because the lacquer itself is an ins insulator. There's an aluminum plate coated with lacquer. The grooves are cut into the lacquer itself. Again, we spray it with silver. We put it in a plating tank. It's an electroplating process from there. And we make a negative off of this positive. Then we put this negative back into the tank and we make a positive off of that. Uh -huh. And these are all metal. They're made out of nickel. This goes back into the tank and we make another negative. This negative will then be centered, the edges coined to fit onto our dies and back sanded. This is what's going to press the record. And there of course is. the record is, is then a positive. So we send a test to you, you got some issue with it. Mm -hmm. We can go back and look at the record. We can go back and look at the stamper and see if there was an issue there. We can go we can go all the way back. Like if there's a loud pop, maybe there's an issue on the lacquer, maybe there's a kissing groove, maybe we created it when we did the plating. So here's a stamper being centered. The last groove on a record is a concentric groove dead center to the middle of the record. Right. He's focusing in on that last groove, which is right there. When it stops going up and down, that means he's got a dead center. 
Wow. And then he's going to punch a pilot hole. Okay. That stamper will get trimmed. We're going to form the center. We're going to form the outside, and that's what's going to press the record. So off to the presses we went. So you got an A and B stamper. You got an A and B label. If the cycle is about 32 seconds, the pellets go into an extruder. Just melt it down. See that black? It looks like a hockey puck. Yep. That's the vinyl itself. Oh, wow. Goes under 1,800 pounds of pressure. The die is heated up to about 280 degrees. The vinyl is about the same temperature. When this opens, the steam's going through and heating up that die. Okay. Now the steam's shut off and the water turned on and cooling down. How often do you have to maintenance these presses? All the time. My newest press is 43 years old. Okay, not to gush too much, but that was awesome. So after watching several of our records being born, we watched as one of the workers slipped the records into white sleeves and then into the printed jackets. There was just one last stop, shrink wrapping. And that's the final step. That's it? That's it. Okay. Yeah, make sure Mark tells us to put the extra jackets on the shipping order and we we'll pick them up. There won't be two million three hundred pieces <laughs> in the warehouse. I can't thank Steve enough for his graciousness. He didn't have to take the time out of his busy schedule and risk the wrath of Snoop Dogg to accommodate us, but he did and I'll be forever grateful. It's with sadness that I have to report Steve just announced to the world that Rainbow will be closing after 80 years. Apparently, a substantial rent increase and a vinyly unsympathetic landlord unwilling to negotiate make it impossible to continue. The topic of moving had actually come up. you think you'll outgrow this facility? I don't think so. I've done it twice. Never doing it again. That's enough. Again, please check out our previous tour and interview on the history of Rainbow in our episodes five and six. Sad to hear about Rainbow closing. It was a very cool plant. Our best to Steve and everybody at Rainbow Records with many thanks for all the great vinyl. For our tour and history cast, be sure to check out episodes five and six of Vinyl Snob. Once the dust settles, we hope to have Steve back on the show and see how retirement agrees with him. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Vinyl Snob. I'm Dave Whitaker. Let's return to the final step of Dana Berry's vinyl dream. 
So I returned the next day and picked up the 203 records. They pressed 20 extra to cover imperfections, loaded up the car, and headed back to Oakland. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on. So now I've got seven boxes of records. What do I do with them? I bring them to stores. Let's hear from several store owners and buyers who have tips for indie bands who want to get their records stocked. Let's start with Henry Wimmer of Open Mind Music in Rockridge, a neighborhood of Oakland. It's always great to bring them by the, the in, directly to the independent store and try to talk to the buyer or manager. I assess the record. I talk to the people. I try to read any, any information, if they have any promo, like one sheet. Try to digest well, whether I can actually sell it. If it, if it seems like it's going to have some legs, then I might outright buy a few copies, especially if someone's not local and it might be harder to get the copies again. If it's someone local, I'll say like, hey, let me take one or two on consignment and then maybe circle back around and keep me stocked as I sell or leave me your information and I'll call you when I sell it and uh, pay you out and keep going. I often ask musicians if they're going to be playing behind that, if they're touring behind it, if they're local, where do they play? Uh, often with an independent store, you want to have some symbiosis. So you say to the artist, hey, if you could mention us in your social media platforms as having stocked your record, then that will ingratiate the store owner or manager buyer to carry it, you know, because we're all in it together in the independent music scene and none of us are operating in a vacuum. So there's that interrelation that's really important to go from making the record to selling the record. Another thing I ask artists is, what do you want it to be on the floor for? What sort of list price? And usually uh, an independent record store will add 50% to the wholesale price. So if someone says, I want to get 10 bucks out of it, I'll put it on the floor for 15, which is sort of a nice price. If you get up to 18 or 20 or 24, often it can be cost prohibitive. Now some advice from a vinyl snob regular, Tom O'Shaughnessy of Econo Jam Records in downtown Oakland. Bands usually come in with an idea of one of two things, and one is like how much they want for the record, or it might be how much they want to see it on the floor for. We'll go from there, and we just take uh, 25% or, or less of you know the retail cost. We usually have artists drop off two or three copies the first time they come in. Generally consignment. Consignment, yeah. Yeah, there are some local bands we will buy outright from because they have like maybe we started on consignment and they've done so well that it's just easier to pay them outright because we know for a fact something's going to sell. If your band's not playing out, the chances of the record selling is really slim. There's also a ton of bands that put out a record and don't do anything with it. So it's still worth putting in the effort of, of getting it on college radio and, and sending it out to the, the blogs and the review publications. I decided to put a sticker on the albums with a brief blurb. Cheap Trick meets Queens of the Stone Age? I don't know. You tell me. High energy guitar rock from Oakland's Night Herons. Good idea? 
you'd be surprised uh, how many people read the sticker and go, oh, okay, yeah, this is down my alley. I'll, yeah. I'll check it out. Oh, it's also a local. Lots of people want to support local bands. Even people from out of town come here and they're like, oh, what's going on in the Bay Area? And, and they'll see that sticker and, and, you know, pick it up. Let's hear some more about this from Tom Lynch, longtime buyer at Amoeba Records in San Francisco. I, I, stickers are great ideas. Much information you can put out there yeah. to let the retailer and the public know just what's inside. I mean, yeah. why be cute? And I don't know when this, who was responsible for the trend of cryptic packaging with zero information about what's inside. But if you're, if anyone has ever done a release like that, say starting in 1980 to the present, a pox on you. Because you've driven so many people mad trying to figure out what the hell you've made and where where to put it. How about some tips for out-of-town bands? I think networking with people that you know in other places is probably like the best way to go about that. Like a couple of young folks that work with me, I've encouraged them, like, listen, a way to step around the new buying for us is just contact your buddies in the Midwest, whether they're in Minneapolis, Indiana, Michigan, whatever, buy their records, buy their new records, and, like, you write the promo about it and buy them used and sell them used, but it's new product. You can check out a full interview with Tom Lynch in the next episode of Vinyl Snob in Confessions of a Vinyl Addict. So how do I feel seeing our record in a store? (laughs) Seriously, it's so cool to see what were once a few chords and melodies, now a record that someone might look at in the bins and take a chance on. I've learned so much about the process of making a vinyl record. It's very different from putting your music on a CD or online. This is an old industry with many variables involved. There's going to be delays and imperfections, case in point, because we crammed 21 and a half minutes of music on each side, the volume has to be lower. So when you turn it up, you hear more surface noise. But you know what? It's vinyl. And those extra pops will just remind me of that fact and the amazing journey I've had witnessing its creation. So thank you to everyone who participated. Please check out our webpage, which has links to everyone involved. I'm happy to say that Night Heron's new record, Heavy Swell, came out November 1st. I've managed to get it stocked in about a dozen Bay Area record stores, One in Portland, a couple in Chicago, and one in D.C. You can check out the webpage for specifics. You can also request it through any store, and they'll be able to order it through their distribution network. Heavy Swell is available online through the Vinyl Snob store, CD Baby, Bandcamp, and through nightherons.com. It's also available to stream wherever you stream music. Thank you so much for listening. This is a very happy Dana Barry for Vinyl Snob. Dana Barry is a writer and musician. He filed his story from Vinyl Snob Studio 2 in Oakland, California. After hearing how it all came about, it now gives me great pleasure to present the world debut of the album Heavy Swell, Night Herons on Vinyl Snob. 
Night Herons on Vinyl Snob. With side two, cut one from the new album Heavy Swell, the song Satellite. Hi, my name is Neil Becton. I'm the owner of Som Records, SOM Records in Washington, D.C. On this episode, for our trip to a local record store, we travel to the nation's capital and Som Records. Som is the Portuguese word for sound. I always had a lot of records growing up. I grew up in Atlanta, and I always had a big record collection in high school. And it got bigger in college. I went to school in Athens and got more records. Uh, and then I lived in London. I lived in Cleveland. So I lived in Los Angeles. Um, got more and more records. And I started DJing, and I got more records. And then I was like, well, I need to open a shop. So here I am. <laughs> Uh, we've been here 14 years, same location. We're on the same block as the Black Cat. The 930 Club is about six blocks away. Uh, Howard Theater is close by, so we got a lot of musicians come in here. Neil also says the local neighborhood is very vinyl-friendly, with several shops in the area. Yeah, now there's actually three other ones close by, so you can do a little circuit, which is nice. I always see people coming in here with uh, bags from other shops. I mean, I compete against, you know, finding records with those guys, but uh, as far as their stores, no, I shop there and they shop here, so... It's a real mix. I mean, when I first opened, like 14 years ago, it was mainly DJs and older folks that had, you know, who were still collecting records. And that's changed, and I get a lot more, a lot of younger customers now, a lot of 20-somethings, high high school kids, college kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, Still get the DJs, still get the older guys, a lot of tourists. Very first day I opened my shop, the very first guy that brought me records to buy brings in this large crate of about 200 records, and it's got Piper at the Gates of Dawn, it's got two, two original Stooges records, uh, two SRC records, a great Detroit like psych band, and just this insanely great collection. And I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. People are just going to bring me rare records every day. Uh, but that's not the, not the case. I mean, I have everything, which is kind of, I pride myself on kind of being a, an everything shop. My biggest sellers are probably classic rock and indie rock uh, and soul. And then after that, probably jazz, dance music I sell. Mm-hmm. I have one of the better selections of dance music here, so, so I sell a lot of that. And like most of the independent record store owners we talk with, Neil is very involved in the local scene. Yeah, actually, I'm one of the organizers of the uh, DC Record Fair, which we've been doing for over two. We just had our 10th uh, year anniversary, and um, we do one every, every winter. We do one. It's big. We had like 1,500 people through the door at the last show. And then we try to do one in the summer, but we don't always do it. And then there's lots of smaller record shops, swaps. There's one today up in Baltimore that's monthly. Ever worked in a record store until I owned one. Um, I went to a lot of them because I knew what I liked about them and what I didn't like about them. And for a final thought on the local brick-and-mortar record industry? Support your local record shops. You know, It's easy to point and click on the computer, but you know, go to the store and you run, people run into each other and you can't duplicate that. That's Neil Becton, owner of Som Records in Washington, D.C. And that's the program. Vinyl Snob is produced at Post Audio, Studio One in Eureka, California. Our executive producer is Dana Berry. Theme music composed by Cameron Robbins. Be sure to check out other great podcasts here on the Pantheon Network. And tune in to Vinyl Snob Radio at VinylSnob.com and listen to the music of many of the artists interviewed here on Pantheon. For Vinyl Snob, I'm Dave Whitaker. Thanks for listening.